That charming music you just heard was the beginning of the third movement of the Violin Concerto in A Major, Opus 5, Number 2, by Joseph Boulogne, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, a French composer from the late 18th century, the first of four pieces on a new album, or a newly revised album, you might say, now titled Violin Concertos by Black Composers Through the Centuries, which is an unusual release for Sadie because three-quarters of it exists on a previous Sadie release, Violin Concertos by Black Composers of the 18th and 19th centuries. This is something of a silver anniversary edition. The original album was released in 1997, and this new version, we remove one piece from the original album and add a new piece, and during the course of this podcast, we'll explain what got removed and why, and what got edited and why. And those of you who have listened before know that whenever we have a new album on Sadie Records, we have a new classical Chicago podcast. I'm Jim Ginsberg, founder and president of Sadie Records, and my guest on this podcast is the star of the show on this album, violinist Rachel Barden-Pine. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Jim. Great to have you on this. So there's so much to talk about. Let me just briefly give you a proper introduction. Of course, Rachel will not need much introduction to Sadie Records fans. Rachel is a violinist who has performed with major orchestras all over the country and the world, including the Montreal, Vienna, and Baltimore symphonies, the Philadelphia Orchestra, the Royal Philharmonic, the Scottish Chamber Orchestra, and of course, our own hometown Chicago Symphony. And she's recorded with all those last three on Sadie Records, in fact. Her festival appearances include Marlboro, Ravinia, and Salzburg. She was a gold medal winner at the J.S. Bach International Violin Competition and prize winner at many other prestigious competitions, including the Queen Elizabeth, the Chrysler, the Segeti, Montreal, and on it goes. This album that we are talking about today is actually Rachel's 22nd for Sadie Records and approximately 40th overall? I believe so, yeah. Wow. Now, you are the quintessential Chicago artist, so can you talk a little bit about your musical upbringing in Chicago? Yeah, well, I grew up on the north side, close to Wrigleyville, um, in North Center, for people that know what that is, and started violin lessons in my neighborhood when I was three. I had to start going out to the suburbs. My main professors, Almeida and Roland Vemos at the Music Institute of Chicago, and I was very particularly lucky to grow up in Chicago because of the Civic Orchestra of Chicago, the Chicago Symphony's training ensemble. The only somewhat close equivalent is the New World Symphony in Miami, but of course that's a freestanding entity. Civic Orchestra is a training orchestra for college, graduate, and postgraduate students, and very closely integrated with the Chicago Symphony. And I got to join that ensemble when I was 11, thanks to being a homeschooler and also an obsessive practicer, I suppose. It was through the Civic Orchestra of Chicago that I got to work with Maestro Michael Morgan, as well as, of course, all the great conductors that came through Civic, from Berenboim to Meta to Boulez and Schulte, on and on. Michael Morgan is our principal conductor. In 92, when I was 17 years old and serving as co-concertmaster of Civic, Michael did a concert entirely of music by Black composers, mostly African-American composers, 20th century, but also a recently rediscovered French concerto from the classical period, late 1700s, and I got to give the modern-day world premiere of that concerto. And 
A few years later, when I had started working with Sadie Records, I had released my Sarasate record on a different label and then my Handel Sonata's record with Sadie, and we were talking about future projects, and we both definitely wanted to make a concerto record. Well, I was excited about this concerto that I had recently done and wondered what other concertos there might be, and I didn't realize it at the time, but I was apparently in a bit of a bubble being here in Chicago in terms of my just awareness of diverse repertoire. Of course, there wasn't yet as much music by Black composers being played as there now is and should have been, one could say, by some of the major arts entities in town. But we did have Paul Freeman's Chicago Sinfonietta, the Center for Black Music Research's New Black Music Repertory Ensemble, Michael Morgan, and other stuff going on. And since my student years, I've been aware of various Black composers and their music. So I went over to Center for Black Music Research Well, the first thing that happened is as I was walking through the hallway into the main library, there was this big, huge replica of a painting on the wall. And it was this black guy in a white Mozart-type wig with a violin and a sword. And I was like, whoa, awesome album cover. I didn't even know who this guy was or what his music sounded like, but I was like, that would make a great album cover. So it turned out to be Joseph Boulogne, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, who, of course, is often referred to as the Black Mozart, but that's totally backwards because it was Boulogne and his music who inspired the younger Wolfgang. Mozart wrote his Sinfonia Concertante after hearing a number of Boulogne's, and my daughter always says, well, Mozart should be the white Boulogne. And he had written more than a dozen concertos, and I went through all of them and decided that the A major was my favorite. And of course, he's written so much other music and an opera that Sadie Records is going to be releasing soon, which I'm so excited about. And string quartets, actually some of the first string quartets in all of France, but he was really the best virtuoso violinist in France at that time, during the time of Mozart. Just an amazing guy. And the fact that he was one of the greatest swordsmen in all of Europe, really the equivalent would be someone who's a concert violinist, a soloist of the first caliber, and was simultaneously an elite Olympic athlete. Nobody like that even exists today, and yet this guy did exist. His history is fascinating, but his music, even if you knew nothing about him and just heard his concertos, they're they're absolutely so charming and so inventive, and they've got plenty of colorful passage work, just really great stuff. And of course, this album came about in conjunction with the Chicago Youth Symphony Orchestras and their elite ensemble that they call the Encore Chamber Orchestra. Exactly. They've restructured many times over the years, and this particular performing ensemble no longer exists. But at the time, it was called the Encore Chamber Orchestra. And in the iteration that we put together for our album project, it was some of the best of the young artists in Chicago Youth Symphony, along with many of their recent and even a few not as recent alums who were among the ranks of some of the best professional players in town. So really a great group led by My dear friend Daniel Hagee, who was principal conductor of Chicago Youth Symphony at the time, has gone on to many great things. So grateful for the commitment of those artists plunging into this project of concertos that nobody had ever played before. And the original version of this album, recorded and released in 1997, featured music of Joseph Boulogne, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, as well as Jose White Lafitte and Samuel Coleridge-Taylor. We don't typically do albums that are reprises of previous albums. Uh, We're calling this a silver anniversary edition with the special edition of a newly discovered concerto by Chicago composer Florence Price. Can you talk, though, about the reception 
that the original version of this album of 18th and 19th century concertos received and how it may have led you to explore even more of this repertoire. Yeah, well, the totally ironic thing is that the concerto that I had played with Michael Morgan and the Civic Orchestra that sparked my interest in discovering music by black composers turned out that that particular composer was a white guy after all. You never know what's going to happen in musicology, and you just do the best you can with the information you have. It's like science. Sometimes new thoughts override previous discoveries. And in this particular case, the Chevalier de Maud de Montpas, a French composer, again, of the time of Mozart, classical period, he had an appellation at the end of his name, Le Noir. And the leading black music researchers for many decades considered him to be among the composers of African descent because of this Lenoir. What else could it possibly mean? And there was no existing known visual image of him that had come down to us. But long after the album came out, further research uncovered that Moudamampa had ridden in a regiment of the French army that all rode black horses. And the Lenoir referred not to his melanin, but to his mount. So he turned out to be a random white French guy. It's still a completely beautiful concerto. I still love it, but he certainly needed to be excised from my special album of violin concertos by black composers. So the beautiful thing is you lose some and you gain some. The day that I went over to Center for Black Music Research looking for violin concertos by black composers, I was handed just one page of a manuscript score by Florence Price of her violin concerto and told that it was considered to be lost forever no hope it would never be found we knew that it existed but the manuscript was just gone miraculously just a few years ago a whole trunk full of her manuscripts was discovered in an old abandoned farmhouse building in illinois that had belonged to a relative of hers and there's a whole fascinating story about this whole thing that you can read in i think it's the new yorker in any case, just a treasure trove, all kinds of chamber music, symphonic music, solo piano music, etc. We've only just scratched the surface. These things are gradually being brought out into publication, and it's a big project. Yeah, so suddenly here we had her violin concerto, actually two violin concertos, an earlier violin concerto number one from many decades before, which was her starting to familiarize herself with the genre, and then this concerto number two, which is a more succinct piece and written just at the end of her life. Definitely a great example of her full-fledged mature voice and a true masterpiece, not just of black composers, not just of women composers, but of American composers, or one could truly say of all composers. A great, great concerto. Actually, if that Florence Price concerto had existed in 97, it would have been on the album, and I would have chosen to include only Saint-Georges and not Moda Mampa. So really, this revision of the album represents what I would have loved for it to have been 25 years ago, and I couldn't be more thrilled. Okay, so that's how we went from violin concertos of black composers of the 18th and 19th centuries to violin concertos by black composers through the centuries. Now, I will say that Mud Montpah is an absolutely delightful piece, and we're not going to lose it. You can still get the original version of the album. It's also available on streaming if you want to hear the piece off of that. We've even used a movement of that concerto on one of our... Uh, nobody does sampler CDs anymore, <laughs> but we used to do these budget price sampler now CDs. now it's all playlists, right? Right, it's all playlists. But there was one that was called Serenely Sadie, lovely, quiet pieces that you can relax to. And the slow movement of the Mud Montpas is actually on that sampler. Oh, it's so lovely. Because it's so lovely, exactly. Well, you asked me about the reception of the album. Yes. And it was truly life-changing. Actually, I have to say a, a number of my Sadie records have been 
not just a fun release that's forwarded my reputation as a interpreter and as a performing artist, but have been beyond that pivotal the things that have deeply affected my life, the release of my Handel Sonata's record, the acclaim that we got for that collaboration with my colleagues, John Mark Rosendahl and David Schrader, led to us being inspired to officially form our group, Trio Sidocento, which has since released lots more albums and we're still going strong. The release of my Brahms and Joachim concertos with the Chicago Symphony led to my temporarily, just for that recording session, borrowing my beloved 1742 ex-soldat Guarneri del Gesu violin because Brahms had personally chosen it for Marie Soldat. And then I fell in love with that instrument and the owner liked my album and decided to keep on lending it to me. I'm still playing it to this day and played it for the Florence Prize. In fact, pivoting subjects here, but in fact, the violin that I used for the first three concertos from the old album, the white Coleridge-Taylor and the Mode de as well, was my old Amati. And then, of course, the Del Gesu that I've been playing since 2002 is the one for the price. And we can talk a little bit more about that later if you want. So the album came out. And it's interesting because in the same year, I also released an album of the obscure original works for violin by Franz Liszt. And that was with the no longer existing Dorian recordings that I made a total of two albums with. <laughs> that album was also under-recognized but totally worthy violin music. And I naively didn't think of those two albums of mine that both came out in 97. I didn't think of them as any different. Of course, people have heard of Liszt, but people actually still haven't heard of his original violin work. So clearly that album didn't quite succeed to do what I had hoped it would do. But meanwhile, the CD record came out and I just got an outpouring of people getting so super excited, like, oh my God, I had no idea that black composers from the 1700s and 1800s even existed. This is amazing. I had no idea of this history. I started getting invited to serve on diversity panels, for which I felt in those days utterly underqualified, but... I'd been passionate already for many years about classical music access just from my background as someone from a working class neighborhood. So this was a wonderful opportunity. And music education has been a passion of mine since the start. So this was a wonderful opportunity to listen and learn. I also got many requests. In those days, email was only just in its infancy, but I got snail mails, people coming up to me in person, and even old-fashioned faxes, people requesting more music, students, parents, teachers, performing artists. And I went back over to CBMR, started to do some research, and quickly realized that most of this repertoire was either long since out of print or in manuscript only and had never been published. And even for those pieces that were obtainable or more easily obtainable, they weren't necessarily in addition suitable for children to learn from. I had already started my RBP foundation in 2001 for the purposes of young artists support as a way to give back for the help that I had received with financial assistance and instrument loans. And I realized, okay, I've got a 501c3 not-for-profit charity, and I've got this project that somebody needs to do, and I am a total research geek and love music education and classical music and its history available for everyone. Accessible? Yeah, well, we weren't even talking about those terms back in those days, inclusion and diversity. This conversation was just in the beginning stages. Sphinx actually formed on the same year as my foundation, and I was quickly invited to be on the board of Sphinx. Sphinx organization is a social justice organization dedicated to transforming lives through the power of diversity in the arts, and the impact they've made is nothing short of transformative. And their founder, Aaron Dvorkin, joined my Music by Black Composers advisory board, so that formed 
the Music by Black Composers Project and felt very underqualified to take such a thing on, but realized that I was getting a lot of these requests because I am a concert artist out there in the world touring around. And a lot of the people that had been working so diligently in the realm of Black music research Those people in academia are not who your average Suzuki teacher in your average town somewhere in the U.S. is going to know to go and ask them, but they've heard of me, they know my albums, they're like, hey, Rachel, where can I find this stuff? So what I turned around and did is I was very blessed that so many of the leading black music researchers, conductors, composers, Suzuki teacher trainers, professors, etc., agreed to join my advisory board, and collectively we figured out exactly how the project should unfold, and giving me advice on the macro level about what the books should look like with the history articles about the all-black orchestras of the 1800s in America, which were kind of the equivalent of the Negro Baseball Leagues, about the fact that Frederick Douglass and Coretta Scott King had played the violin, and then some of our other activities, so many free resources to check out on our website, musicbyblackcomposers.org. Lots of good stuff on there. Directories of living and historic composers totaling more than 450 composers. But also very detailed, hands-on advice about exactly which piece by which composer should be included in various projects. And even the wording of certain sentences saying someone is enslaved rather than someone is a slave. Or discontinuing the use of the term minority. Here in Chicago, there are more African-American residents of our city than there are non-African-American. And so minority is not statistically accurate one could say underrepresented. And so just making sure that the language was representing the intent to the best degree possible. And uh, yeah, sorry, I'm rambling a bit, but this has become a lifelong passion of mine. The funny thing is, as a performing artist, I know I would have done a ton of research on this body of repertoire anyway, just for my own personal use. But it's lovely to indulge in reading articles and books and dissertations and theses and also have it do some good for social justice and so amazing to be involved in that work for so long and see the world finally catching up and becoming excited. Well, you touched on the world as it was in 1997 when the original album was released. Of course, cultural awareness has grown in intervening years, especially very recent years. So is your hope that a release in 2022 will bring even greater awareness than maybe the original release did? Yeah, you know, it was fascinating. I talked about the response from the the public and the musical community when the first album came out, but the media response, wasn't it the CD record as a label, wasn't it your first New York Times review was my album? And it got places because people were just so fascinated by the topic. My favorite story is the fact that it got reviewed in Playboy magazine, which in those days was still a respected and widely read publication, shall we say. And actually, it was a real coup to get a review in there because they only reviewed four albums a month of all genres. So to have a classical album at all as a choice was huge. And the the hilarious thing is, this is before the days of social media. So one by one, every friend individually, I got to prank them by saying, guess what? I'm in Playboy. And then they go, what? And I'd say, yes, it's a CD review. (laughs) But the point is, there was a certain amount of mainstream attention that was very, very exciting. I've come across so many young artists, particularly African-American young artists, who said that this album was pivotal in terms of opening their eyes to the repertoire that was out there and caused them to go and search for more repertoire and that they grew up with my album. Such an honor to hear such testimonials. And it speaks to the power of these composers' great works. 
So now there is so much more awareness than there once was, but I do hope that by highlighting these concertos once again, that will just bring a sense of renewed attention. And also, despite all the excitement about the album, all these years, it's not been easy to get some of these works programmed. Balone is the exception. I did start to play his concertos much more frequently right away and have played them regularly throughout the years, either in combination with Mozart or instead of Mozart or just alongside random stuff like a chamber orchestra that booked me for the four seasons and decided to add on a Bologna because it was a strings only group. And the A major that I recorded was actually strings only, which makes it super flexible for different sizes of orchestras. We should probably get to some of the music, but before we do, I will note that the album booklet begins after the program listing, of course, with a personal note from you, and that includes a dedication. Would you like to say something about that? Oh, well, Michael Morgan, who originally did that pivotal 1992 special concert with Civic Orchestra in Orchestra Hall of all Black composers, he, of course, went on to have an amazing career. Sadly, he died way too young. He was music director of the Oakland Symphony, which really was one of the most cutting-edge orchestras in the U.S. in terms of their creative and inclusive programming. He also was music director of the Gateways Orchestra, which just became the first ever all-black orchestra to perform on the stage of Carnegie Hall just a few months ago. And Michael was to have led that concert, except that he died about a year ago. Michael was really a mentor in my life in many ways in terms of the black music project that my foundation took on. He was, of course, one of our first advisors and really did give us advice, sometimes solicited, sometimes unsolicited, always candid, and helped guide me and inspire me all through the years. None of this would have ever happened if not for him. That's wonderful. The program is in chronological order, and the first piece is by Joseph Boulogne, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, who lived from 1745 to 1799, and his concerto in A major, Opus 5, number 2. We've already talked a little bit about his history, champion fencer, maybe possibly the best fencer in Europe, as well as the leading French classical period composer of the end of the 18th century, his one surviving opera, Haymarket Opera, just did here in Chicago, and we'll be coming out with that recording in February. He led a French regiment, recently Music of the Baroque in Chicago, did a whole show devoted to Saint-Georges and his history. And Apollo's Fire, I was part of their period instrument concert celebrating Mozart and Bologna together and that just passed through Chicago. Mm-hmm. So we've already talked a little bit about the history. Are there sources you could recommend to people who want to learn more about this? The wonderful thing about our musicbyblackcomposers.org website is we have so many resources, including a children's book page, which is either books about classical music with illustrations featuring children of color or books about particular performers or composers who are black. And there are not one, not two, but three different children's books about Bologna. As well, of course, there are many grown-up books about him, which you can find on our bibliography page. Yeah, lots of good stuff. And of course, if you want to find some of his music, you can go to our repertoire directories, which link directly to where you can purchase the music, where you can hear recordings of the music, and so on and so forth. So it just happens that the concerto you chose is from 1775, which happens to be the year that Mozart wrote his five concertos. (laughs) So obviously people are going to ask, how do they compare? Yeah, one of the things that has been used to dismiss various composers who aren't white, male, and European has been to say, well, this person wasn't as good as Brahms, or this person wasn't as good as Mozart. But let's be honest here. 
Nobody except Mozart was as good as Mozart. And yet we played guys like Dittersdorf and Stamitz and Hofmeister and all these C-list German guys or whatever. Bologna's music is better than those guys. I'd say he's among the best of anybody who wasn't Mozart. So to say was he as good as Mozart is like totally a silly question. And also he was different. There's a, a distinctly different aesthetic. If you think about it, much of the classical music period music and all of the violin concertos that we ever hear are by those German and Austrian guys. So the French aesthetic is elegant, facile. There's no first movement cadenza, oddly enough, as compared to the German concertos. It just has a different flavor to it, which is elegant and brilliant. And honestly, for me, as a violinist, as a fan of classical music, because there's nothing in his concerto that sounds ethnic, just sounds French. He's not drawing upon any African rhythms or anything like that, right? So his history as a black musician at that time was amazing. And you think about others like George Bridgetower, for whom Beethoven wrote his Sonata Number no. 9 that he later dedicated it to Kreutzer, but actually premiered with Bridgetower. But the fact that this concerto is French, I think, is utterly fascinating because it's just a beauty that we don't normally hear. And from a technical playing standpoint, I think you pointed out some differences as well. That is absolutely true. Mozart's father was always nagging him to practice violin. I think he probably might have practiced violin if he hadn't been nagged as much. You know, that little rebellious thing. (laughs) But Mozart wasn't as good a violinist as Saint-Georges. Clearly, Saint-Georges, sorry, I'm still calling him Saint-Georges. That's what we used to call him. And Saint-Georges is his title, so saying Joseph Ballone, Chevalier de Saint-Georges is like saying Jim Ginsburg, Knight of Chicago. (laughs) And so now people are, you know, while not dismissing his title, they're now reverting to calling him by his surname. It's one of them. Or same thing in Shakespeare's Macbeth, right? They they, they refer to people by uh, their title. But people, I think, you know, want him to not be erased. I think there's a real strong feeling about that in the African-American community, and therefore we're lifting up his given name. Yeah, I'll just go with the flow of whatever seems to be the right thing to do at the time. Yeah, so he goes higher on the fingerboard than Mozart does in any of his concertos. And he also just has all of these characteristic post-Locatelli pre-Viati French school passage work, these brilliant bow techniques, passages of tenths, and for goodness sakes. And there are spots where I'm convinced that the way that he requires you to whip your right arm around with the bow must have been directly inspired by his prowess as a fencer. Mm. Interestingly, my own father was captain of the fencing team at University of Chicago. And my mother is the one with the musical background. She sang in church choir. Her mother and her siblings were serious amateur or even professional musicians. And the joke in my family was if you'd gotten your father's musicality and your mother's coordination, you would have been really bad. (laughs) Because my father couldn't carry a tune to save his life and definitely couldn't keep the beat. But I always think of him and his swords when I'm playing this music by Bologna, and it's very fun stuff. Right. Now, is there a particular reason you, do we know how many violin concertos? Oh, I'd have to go to musicbyblackcomposers.org and count, but it's like 12 or 14, maybe. So a lot. Yes. So so why the A major opus five, number two? You know, I actually can't answer that question. I can't justify the fact that it's my favorite. I can look at others and point out their compositional strengths and 
but this one just personally appeals to me the most. I, they're all good. There's not a single one that isn't good, but this just happens to be my personal favorite. Like everybody's got a favorite solo box, another partita. Everybody's got a favorite Paganini Caprice. And the funny thing is probably about 20 years later, or maybe 15, I decided to figure out which of his movements or excerpts from his movements or simplifications of his themes, you know, as one does for pedagogical repertoire. In fact, we took a theme and variations from his sonata and used just the theme as a, a piece, quote unquote, in our uh, music by Black Composers Violin Volume 1. So I was going through all of the concertos to peruse what might be appropriate for the different levels for our curricular series. And I hadn't played all of them since 97. And I played all of them again. And I was thinking, hmm, Am I going to still choose the A major because I know it so well, so therefore it's the most familiar, so it will unfairly remain my favorite, or will I maybe choose a different one because it'll seem fresh and interesting after having played the A major so often? I tried my best to listen with an open mind, and anyway, the end result was that the A major is still definitively my favorite, and I still can't explain why. Uh, uh, Before we hear a little bit more of it, can you give us a quick roadmap through the piece? Well, as Mark Clegg explains in the liner notes of the booklet, he doesn't develop his themes so much as just always have more and more themes. He certainly has themes that recur, but each one more beautiful than the next. Lots and lots of melodic invention, as well as all the fun technical stuff. And also a lot of beautiful approach to orchestration. As I said, it's only a string orchestra. And as was typical in the classical period, the double bass doesn't have a separate part, but reinforces the cellos. And I've played it with lots of student string quartets over the years for that reason, because they're really only four parts. But yet what he does with those parts, having pizzicato moments, having moments where the cello bass sits out and then comes in, which gives the impact of bombast, even with such small forces, because you haven't heard them for a while. Really a great use of the forces at hand and so much creativity. The opening theme, similar to the start of the solo section of, of Mozart's A major, but in Bologna's case, it's the the opening tutti. Um, it is a double exposition type of approach, but his very first theme never recurs. And then he has an exposition, development, recapitulation, no cadenza, as I said. There is a full-fledged cadenza at the end of the second movement, and then little ornamental things in the rondo last movement. His rondos of all of his concertos take on the same form, which is A, B, A, C, A, D, A. And in all of his rondos, the C section is in the parallel minor with an A, B, A form to it, where the B section is in the relative major. Okay, so if that makes sense, if you were following that. Anyways, the point is he has a clear, um, deliberate structure to his last movement, which include a minor key episode in the middle, which is always contrasting in mood. Because, you know, key is interesting, but it's really about a totally different affect that comes in before it goes back to the charming rondo. And the rondo is always, like Mozart's A major concerto, first heard by the soloist and then by the 2D as a double rondo structure. He doesn't do as much as what Mozart does in terms of varying his rondos. But of course, in those days, you could ornament to your heart's content. And you'll hear on my recording that I add new and different and larger quantities of trills each time the rondo reiterates as the movement goes along. It's very interesting to note that when the soloist comes in at the start of the first movement, there's a long held note, um, pitch A, one octave above the A string, and then it blossoms into the melody. And then in the second movement, while it's a completely different time signature, different melody, 
he starts with the exact same pitch, a long-held note in the solo part, and then blossoms somewhere else. But that is a cool way that he uses the same device, but for two different purposes, but joins the movements together in a cool way. Interesting you mentioned that when we were recording the opera with Haymarket and their wonderful period instrument orchestra, some of the players started to notice similar things in some of the dances where he would carry over something in the bass line from one dance to the next, but with a completely different melodic line above it. That's one of the challenges with doing this overlooked, neglected repertoire, is that when I'm doing a piece from the so-called canon, I can rely on certain resources. We're talking about music by dead composer. If it's a living composer, you can send them an email and get your answer, right? But uh, dead composers, if I'm playing a work by a composer that's been well-known for a long time, there's a pedagogical tradition where interpretative ideas that have been passed from, from teacher to student for many generations, often going back all the way to the concerto's premiere. There have been many other recordings where you can hear different options and different ideas. And for me as a research geek, you know, I always heavily rely on theses and dissertations and articles and musicological journals and even books and all of these analyses that, first of all, will take the entire work and do a detailed analysis of every measure and we'll also place it in the context of other works by that same composer and talk about the performance practices of the time and place and just the whole nine yards and if you're trying to interpret something in the absence of such information it does create an extra layer of difficulty one of the things that i had to do in order to prepare for the original 97 recording is the two classical period works, including the one by Joseph Alone, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, existed in a printed edition from the late 1700s without a conductor score. Because in those days, you didn't have a guy with a baton as part of the ensemble. You just had the violin soloist leading the concerto themselves. So you had the parts, the cello part, viola part, first violin, second violin, and solo, all in separate books. And that's what you had. And so in order to be able to do it with a conductor and also check for misprints and so on, it all had to be entered into the computer. And that was a big job that I supervised. And then, of course, after the score was made, we had to format the individual parts. And that was actually my first foray into that level of complexity with music engraving. And of course, I've done it countless times since then with all kinds of manuscripts and old editions from those earlier periods of music. But... Yeah, probably took more hours of my time than actually interpreting and practicing the music itself. This is something we're starting to address with music by Black composers. First step is what music exists and where do I find it? And is it in playable condition? We've been working on those three fronts for a long time. And you can see the result of some of that in some of our repertoire directories with many more that are soon to be launched. But addressing the interpretative desert course you can't recreate what never happened of people playing it through the years but certainly I hope that by the time my daughter grows up there will be dissertations and analyses and all of these things that will will say oh so this passage of Saint-Georges is excuse me Boulogne is similar to this other spot in his opera and this other spot in his quartet and this was a typical device of his in this way and you know just to have that information at hand does enhance what you're able to do as a performer on stage but certainly relying on your instincts and just studying the piece itself by yourself, you can do a heck of a lot. And it was such a privilege to be part of the start of this whole conversation.
Well, to get back to the rondo, I think you told me that the D section, the final non-A section, is particularly virtuosic and shows off his technique. Oh my gosh, yes. He's going between the G string and the E string in rapid succession, which is the lowest and highest string of the violin. So your arm is going up, down, up, down, up, down. And meanwhile, your left hand fingers are absolutely flying all over the fingerboard. But if you film a performance of someone playing this and mute it and just see their bow arm slashing through the air, it looks like, well, I guess these days you would say it looks like they're wielding a lightsaber. (laughs) It's a great moment. Wonderful. Well, let's hear some of that then. We open this podcast with the beginning of the rondo, so we'll move further in and make sure to include that D section in what you hear now. So here's an excerpt of the rondo third movement of the Concerto in A Major, Opus 5, Number 2, written in 1775 by Joseph Boulogne, Chevalier de Saint-Georges, performed by violinist Rachel Barden-Pine, with the Encore Chamber Orchestra, conducted by Daniel Hagee. You just heard a portion of the Rondo, third movement, of a concerto written in 1775 by Joseph Boulogne, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, his violin concerto in A major, opus 5, number 2. It is the opening work on an album titled Violin Concertos by Black Composers Through the Centuries. It was performed by violinist Rachel Barden-Pine with the Encore Chamber Orchestra, conducted by Daniel Hagee, Uh, who we will continue to hear in the next two pieces. And the next one is by a composer named, and I'm going to give his full name just once, Jose Silvestre de los Dolores White Lafitte, also known as Joseph White, who lived from 1835 to 1918. Rachel, who was this person? So Jose White was born in Cuba, first studied in Cuba with another Afro-Cuban violin virtuoso. Actually, the etude that White wrote and dedicated to his teacher is one of the tracks on my Capriccio Latino album on CD, a Cuban-flavored etude, (laughs) really fun stuff. Luis Moro Gottschalk, one of the great pianists of the era, sponsored White to go and study at the Paris Conservatoire. 
And what I find really fascinating is after a stellar solo career all over the planet, he returned to the Paris Conservatoire as professor. And among his students was Inescu. And of course, Inescu was Menuhin's teacher. So Jose White is actually Yehudi Menuhin's grand teacher, which I think is as great a violinistic credential as anything. He only wrote one concerto, and it's in a very interesting key, F-sharp minor. Uh, What makes his concerto special, and what's significant about that key? A lot of his violin and piano works, as I said, every bit is difficult, and every bit as beautiful as those of Sarasate. Sarasate's were very Spanish-flavored, Hoyt's were Caribbean-flavored, and Cuban and, and other influences. So great body of repertoire, something that has not yet been even started to be explored by violin soloists, partially because most of the music is not so easily obtainable, and that's yet another project for our MBC organization. His violin concerto is not in any way Cuban. It sounds European, could have been written by Vinyowski or Vuitton, though it clearly has his own individual voice, that sort of aesthetic that it carries. And Normally we hear Vinyowski's Concerto Number no. 2, which has the beautiful romance movement and the Romani-inspired last movement. But Vinyowski's Concerto Number no. 1 is actually much more difficult. Let's put it this way. It starts with the stretch of a tenth, mm. a passage of tenths, and it goes downhill from there. People talk about that it might be more difficult even than Paganini's concertos. Certainly I learned Paganini's concerto when I was 11, and then I didn't learn Vinyowski's first concerto till I was 13. So I also agree with that order of level of difficulty. And so Vinyowski's first concerto is in an F sharp minor. And that's an understandable key for the violin because it's the relative minor of the key of A major, which is a violinistic key. But the fact that F sharp minor's parallel key of F sharp major has way more sharps than anybody ever wants to deal with, does make it a less often played key for a big work. Strangely enough, Vinyowski chose to use F sharp minor for his first concerto, and then of course Jose White used it for his only concerto, and I can't help but think that there was some kind of one-upmanship going on between those two classmates. Okay, I'm going to write a concerto just as hard as yours and just as cool as yours in this same weird key. <laughs> and it's fun to think of that friendly rivalry from back in the day. There's actually even a third contemporaneous concerto in that key. That's right. Heinrich Wilhelm Ernst, who actually was known as Paganese's successor. The Jose White, on the other hand, is a really good example of the problem that we've had in classical music for so many decades. So this concerto, also every bit as appealing and rewarding as that of his colleague. And in fact, so said the reviewers in his lifetime about his performances as an artist, they would say, his technique is every bit as wonderful as that of Vinyowski and his expression exceeds that of Vuitton and all these flowery things. In your personal note, you talk about having performed and recorded this piece and hoping it would have a greater life and having some difficulty getting it programmed until very recently. Can you talk about that experience? So this concerto in F sharp minor, truly a masterpiece, just a gorgeous piece. All these years, 25 years, I've been begging orchestras, would you please consider programming the Jose White Concerto? Even in Miami, I can tell this story because the Florida Philharmonic no longer exists, so I won't offend them by telling tales on them. But sometimes you want to have an artist come for the first time with a piece of standard repertoire so the public can get to know the artist. But once the artist is a known quantity in your community, sometimes you can be adventurous and people are going to come to hear Rachel even if they don't recognize what it is that she's about to play. So you have more freedom with a return engagement. And so it was a return engagement. And I said, look, 
This composer is so well-known, his La Bella Cubana is considered to be an unofficial national song. Literally, the taxi driver from the airport to the hotel knew Jose White. It's like, this would be an extraordinary opportunity for you guys to reach out to your Cuban population who maybe isn't already attending the symphony here in Miami. You can also reach out to the African-American community because he happens to be Afro-Cuban. This is so full of potential. And they said, no, we're not comfortable programming anything that our audiences don't already know and love. Of course, as not-for-profits, orchestras have to be careful that they stay solvent and sell tickets. But now that conversation has utterly shifted with so many performing arts organizations. They are recognizing the value of having not a narrow slice of voices as the classical conversation, that we're missing so much beauty if we limit ourselves, that by being inclusive, we're elevating the experience for all people. We all need to hear all the music, all the good music. So I always said, after just feeling so despairing about this Jose White Concerto as a symptom of the big problem in our classical music world. Not one professional orchestra booked me for it all those years. I said, if I can ever get an orchestra to finally program the Jose White, I'll know that our world has finally started to change. Well, what do you know? This last season, two orchestras engaged me for it on their own initiative. Ah. And so, yay. And I have every expectation that many more to come. And I also hope that many of my colleagues, that other soloists will take it up. It's a commitment to practice the darn thing. I don't know if I can explain this without the visual, but if you think about an octave on the fingerboard of a violin, it's normally done with the first finger and the fourth finger, what we call our index finger and pinky finger, one and four. And there's a thing called fingered octaves, which is very intense Paganini-level technique where we do one and three and two and four alternating. Well, Jose White, that stinker, he has spots where you actually have to do octaves with your three and four, which is an extremely over-the-top stretch. It's possible, but it takes a lot of practice, but it's totally worth it. Today, there is a performing edition of this piece, and I remember there was some issue with the score at the sessions as we were about to start recording the piece. Oh my gosh. Um, as you mentioned earlier, I've made, I think, exactly 40 albums at this juncture, and you know, there have been many memorable moments, um, but probably the most dramatic was the night that we were supposed to have recorded the Jose White Violin Concerto. The conductor stood up in front of the orchestra, signaled to the cellos, and the bassoons played instead. And then a flute started playing that wasn't even in his score. And he was like, what the heck is going on? We quickly realized that the parts didn't match the score. This was a handwritten edition in a copyist's hand, and somehow the editors, I don't know what happened, but it was a mess. And assuming that the score was probably more correct, the Chicago Youth Symphony, you know, this is in the days before one typed all these things into the computer, but that probably would have actually taken even longer. Chicago Youth Symphony administration stayed up all night long. They Xeroxed a number of copies of the score, and then they all sat there and carefully cut out every single line and pasted together parts that the orchestra could play off of the next day. Of course, in the session itself, we quickly pivoted, thanks to the flexibility of Maestro Hagee and musicians, we pivoted to recording a different one of the works that night and then resumed the Jose White the next night with all the correct notes. Thankfully, my Music by Black Composers project, our musicologists, succeeded in tracking down the original manuscript from which this ill-fated handwritten version had 
obviously been based, but who knows what happened in the translation. Ruggiero Ricci had given the modern day world premiere in performance, and then it had received an LP recording by Aaron Roseanne before my CD came out. And in any case, we got the manuscript and then engaged professional engravers overseen by myself, along with conductor Tito Munoz, who so generously donated his time to going over every measure carefully with me with the different sources. And so we now have a careful and correct modern printed performing edition that's ready to go and actually was used for my concerts this year. Wonderful. So now the finale is a particularly wonderful and flashy piece. Can you say a few words before we play an excerpt? Yeah, probably the first movement is the most difficult technically, but the third movement is the most extrovertedly flashy. Just such a fun romp, very thrilling for the audience to both see and hear. Of course, on this album, we're only hearing it, but it's plenty thrilling even without seeing all the fingers flying around. But you can see them in your mind's eye as you listen. (laughs) Just a prime example of its type of composition for the violin. Very much a violinistic piece written for the violin ergonomically, obviously with fiddle in hand, that gives it something that probably a composer who wasn't a violinist themselves would never have come up with. And it's great to have that type of repertoire for us to play, not without gorgeous melodies as well. All right, well, let's hear that then. Here's an excerpt of the third moment finale of the Violin Concerto in F-sharp minor by Jose White Lafitte, written in 1864. Once again, we hear violinist Rachel Barden-Pine with the Encore Chamber Orchestra, conducted by... Daniel Hagee. I think I need to catch my breath after that. That was from the finale of Jose White Lafitte's 1864 Violin Concerto in F-Sharp Minor, performed by my guest on this Classical Chicago podcast, violinist Rachel Barden-Pine with the Encore Chamber Orchestra, conducted by 
Daniel Hagee. One more piece that existed on both the original version of this album released in 1997 and this new version being released in September of 2022 is the Romance in G Major for Violin and Orchestra, Opus 39, written in 1899 by Samuel Coleridge Taylor, whose dates are 1875 to 1912. So, Rachel, who was Samuel Coleridge Taylor, and why is he such an important and towering figure in the history of Black classical composers? Yeah, Coleridge Taylor, his parents were an English woman and a father from Sierra Leone. And he grew up as a child prodigy violinist, but his main career was as a composer and conductor. He was often referred to as the Black Dvorak or the African Mahler, which, of course, in those days was a very, very high compliment. Nowadays, we recognize that such terms could be problematic, but still shows the esteem in which he was held. Sir Edward Elgar was among his many fans. He had a large output of chamber music, choral music, symphonic music. In fact, his oratorio Hiawatha, based on the Longfellow poem, for many decades was the most frequently performed oratorio in the world, even beating out the Handel Messiah, if you can believe it. Despite not being in any way of African-American heritage himself, he became fascinated with the music of African-Americans, particularly the spiritual, and made a number of concert versions of spirituals that he hoped would bring them to the concert stage in the same way that Brahms had his Hungarian dances or you know, Grieg with the Norwegian, Dvorak with the Czech music. And the introduction to a collection of those spiritual settings, which also included original accompaniments and sometimes even entire original sections by Coleridge Taylor. The introduction to that collection was written by Booker T. Washington, who referred to Coleridge Taylor as the greatest musician of our race. In fact, a violin version of one of the piano spirituals appears on my CD album, American Virtuosa, tribute to Maud Powell. Maud Powell's version, of course, of Coleridge Taylor's setting of Deep River. And Maud Powell was the dedicatee of Coleridge Taylor's violin concerto. Um, I'll talk about that in a sec. But W.E.B. Dubois actually brought Coleridge Taylor over to America at a certain point. There's a whole documentary about that that you can actually find on YouTube. Really wonderful film that I was honored to be part of. Over on the other side of the ocean, there were a lot more opportunities available than there were here in the U.S., sadly. African-American classical musicians were excluded from mainstream concert life during the late 18, early 1900s. And like women with women's symphonies, there were black orchestras and also African-American classical musicians would form their own organizations, which they often called Samuel Coleridge Taylor Societies after their hero. He was held in such esteem that people would even name their kids after him, including our beloved Chicago composer, Coleridge Taylor Perkinson, who ended up with the last name of Coleridge-Taylor as his first name. And I have worked with him and have recorded his music. And Sadie, of course, has an entire album of Coleridge Taylor Perkinson, but not to be confused with Samuel Coleridge Taylor and not to be confused with the white English poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Totally different guy. So the Violin Concerto by Coleridge Taylor is gorgeous and worthy of being played much more frequently than it has been. It's starting to creep back into greater prominence. We have full information about it, how to find the music, links to recordings and instrumentation length, all those good pieces of data on our musicbyblackcomposers.org website. But why did I not include his violin concerto on my Violin Concertos by Black Composers record, especially because it was written for and premiered by my violin hero, Maud Powell? Well, you simply can only squish so many minutes onto one single CD. So thankfully, Coleridge Taylor 
also wrote a number of concert pieces for violin and orchestra. And so I was able to well represent his voice by his romance in G major, which is also totally gorgeous, a great example of his compositional style, um, full of lush double stops and beautiful orchestration. Frankly, I think it should be played in place of the Dvorak romance. Coleridge-Taylor romance deserves to be in rotation right alongside those. It's just a great work for violin and orchestra. And interestingly, he recycled it later on. It serves as a simpler version, shorter and without double stops, serves as the middle movement of his three-movement sonata for violin and piano, which he wrote more than a decade later. And so he obviously really liked this tune because he used it twice. And once you hear the tune, I think you'll know why. The original romance actually exists both in versions with orchestra and with piano, right? Well, yes. Like many works with orchestral accompaniment, of course, you have a piano reduction, which can be used both for study and rehearsal purposes as well as, well, back in the day, they would play concertos on recitals, but nowadays we don't do that so much, but we can still play anything that isn't a concerto on a recital. So indeed, that means that you can perform this romance in its violin and piano version on a recital. So we list this actually as a world premiere recording, even though it was the original 1997 sessions were almost 100 years after it was written. How surprising is that to you? Yeah, surprising and dismaying. Not so much anymore now that I understand how these things all played out with this body of repertoire, but also cool. I'm never going to make a world premiere recording of something written by Brahms or somebody, but it's sad when you think about the fact that it wasn't heard for all those years, but also exciting to think that thanks to our release, it will get heard now by everybody who's alive today and into perpetuity. Wonderful reasons to have studio recordings and not just go around touring and giving live performances because a studio recording is something that will exist past you and can spread farther. People in countries that I've never yet visited and maybe never will can still listen to this album and hear this music and it can be shared. Before we get to hearing an excerpt, can you walk us through the plan of the whole piece? The main melody with the gorgeous double stops appears at the beginning and end and it does have some contrasting episodes in different keys with different kinds of emotions in the middle, a little bit more intense, a little more driving. And so it's a a wonderful journey from something more calm to something more agitated and then back to the beautiful calm, you know, maybe like the course of a romance. (laughs) I'm sure all of us can relate. In contrast to the two pieces we've heard from now where we heard violin virtuosity, Mark Clegg in his program notes says, in this case, the virtuosity of the work is compositional rather than instrumental. He doesn't have flashy stuff, but it's very clearly written by a violinist. It, everything just works and fits. It might be hard, but it totally feels like, yes, a guy that can play the violin well wrote this piece. Well, let's hear some of that then. We'll hear actually the last about quarter of the piece from the return of the main theme, just because it's so lovely. Yeah, and it ends so touchingly as so many of his works do. Great. Well, let's hear that then. So this is the last quarter or so of the 1899 romance by Samuel Coleridge Taylor. It's his opus 39 and performed by finalist Rachel Barden Pine and the Encore Chamber Orchestra, conducted by Daniel Hagee.
You just heard a portion, the ending of the Romance in G Major for Violin and Orchestra, Opus 39 by Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, a piece from 1899. It was performed by violinist Rachel Barden-Pine, my guest on this podcast, with Daniel Hagee conducting the Encore Chamber Orchestra. And if you like what you're hearing, and I sure hope you do, want to make sure you know how to get the album, you can go to our website, sadierecords.org, that's C-E-D-I-L-L-E, records.org, to obtain the physical CD, or Amazon.com, of course, can sell it to you, or Archive Music, if you prefer to stream your music. It'll be there on Spotify and Tidal and Apple Music, all the places that you can stream albums So when it's released on September 9. And I sure hope you'll want to check out the album as a whole as you hear these excerpts. For streaming sites, for the pieces we've heard so far, you don't actually have to wait for that street date because you can still find it on the original version of this album that was released in 1997, Violin Concertos by Black Composers of the 18th and 19th Century. So if you can't wait, you can definitely hear the pieces we've already talked about that way for now. But the last piece on the album, you'll only be able to hear after this album is released, and we'll get to that in a moment. Before we move on to it, All the works we've heard so far were recorded in June 1997 with Larry Rock as a recording engineer. He used to be the engineer for WFMT and for many years the engineer for the New York Philharmonic. So in addition to being recorded 25 years earlier than the last piece, the three we've heard so far were also recorded with a different instrument. That's right. From 92 till 2000, I played a Brothers Amati made in 1617, and then I got an upgrade to a Strad, a brief loan of a 1744 Del Jesu, which would have been lent to me longer, except that I met and fell in love with the 1742 Del Jesu that I have been playing since 2002 with the Brahms recording that I did with Sadie and Chicago Symphony. So interesting to go back and listen to my earlier self, so to speak. In fact, there have been a couple of pieces that I've recorded more than once on my CD output. We've been making records together for so long. There was a Handel Sonata on my Handel's album that reappeared in my trio's Italian album, which makes sense if you know about Handel. And the middle movement of William Grant Stills' suite, his mother and child, was on my lullaby album, but then the entire William Grant Stills suite, including that movement, was on my blues dialogues. So you can hear the exact same music played by me with a separation of years. But this is going to be an interesting thing because you're hearing a very much earlier me and then a very recent me and the two different violins. And it'll be interesting to see what people perceive of as similarities and differences. Of course, a different hall, different engineer, different microphones. But still, I think you can hear the differences in the voice of the violin, but also some consistency in my personality. I I always strive to learn and grow as an artist every further decade that I am alive, but yet I think there's something essential at the core of my personality that always is and always will be there. There's a couple of earlier albums, particularly my Sarasate record that I'm still proud of what it was for when it was, not on Sadie, thankfully. I feel like, oh my gosh, that doesn't sound at all like how I would play that music now. But I'm happy to report that I was just, for example, listening to the Jose White very closely this last year when I was preparing for my live performances of it. And I felt like that's about how I still play it. And, you know, I don't feel at all like, oh, man, that's my younger self. That does It's a little squeamish. No, that I'm still completely happy with those old tracks, in case you were wondering. Oh, good. So the last piece, Chicago composer Florence Price's Violin Concerto Number no. 2 from 
1952, and that really is right at the end of her life. She lived from 1887 to 1953. That piece was recorded much more recently, in fact, this year, 2022. Now, how did that recording session in Scotland in January come about, and what was it like working with Jonathan Hayward and the Royal Scottish National Orchestra? I'd previously recorded with the RSNO, my Cachaturian and Dvorak record, and I'd performed with them, and so we had a prior existing relationship, so it was fun to just come back and reunite with them. We also, on the same session, recorded the concerto written for me by Earl Minion and the Shostakovich First Violin Concerto, which is going to be another album soon to be released by Sadie. And so it was a very intense session with lots of notes to practice and get right in a very short amount of time. But I'm so glad, especially with the pandemic, that we were able to make all the pieces of the puzzle fit together with conductor and orchestra and producer and me and all of us were COVID free just in the right number of weeks and able to navigate the protocols of going to another country under those circumstances. And yeah, that was another memorable occasion of making a CD happen. But it was my first collaboration with conductor Jonathan Hayward. Of course, I'd heard wonderful things about him for a number of years now and was so excited to get to collaborate with him. He had never performed this concerto before. It was new music to him. And so together we had to figure stuff out. Luckily, because of my foundation, I had access to all four of her manuscripts, the full orchestral score and its separate solo violin part, the violin and piano accompaniment version and its separate violin part. And sometimes all four of those violin parts didn't necessarily agree with each other, so I very carefully compared and contrasted them and made some decisions, but there were also just things that we thought might be contradictory or perhaps missing from the orchestral dynamics, articulations. So there was a lot of figuring out to do. And as I said, in the absence of scholars who have already added their two cents to the conversation, we were just doing this blind, relying on our lifetime of experience as musicians overall and interpreting her piece from itself. Yeah, I couldn't be more delighted with the end result and just Jonathan's musicianship and artistry, just how he brought the music to life as we were working together. And of course, his care and commitment to trying to make the most of it and the orchestra responding to everything. We were in a very unusual situation. You might have a lesser known piece where the composer is there to help clue you in, or you might have something that's been less often recorded, but by a more well-known composer or something that's a little bit obscure, but there's still maybe a good critical edition of it. In this case, we had no help (laughs) and managed to make it work. Yeah, I'm just overjoyed with the result. Well, let's back up a moment, Rachel. Who was Florence Price and why is she such an important figure for Chicago and nationwide as her works are, as you pointed out, suddenly being performed everywhere? Florence Price was born in Little Rock, and so, of course, the state of Arkansas claims her as their own, but, you know, we all know she left Arkansas because it wasn't so good to be in states like that when she was alive as, you know, part of the Great Migration. She came to Chicago and was actually educated in Chicago at the formerly existing American Conservatory of Music, and her teacher was none other than the great American composer Leo Sowerby, whose music appears on many of CD Records' output. 
and she became part of a group of composers known as the Chicago Renaissance, um, which also, of course, included, as did the earlier Harlem Renaissance in the 40s, included intellectuals, literary greats, visual artists, and so on. And I would add to that list two very important figures who she had close relationships with, Langston Hughes, the great poet, and she set many of his poems in her songs, and William Grant Still, who thought so highly of her that her last work, her Dances in the Cane Breaks, a piano piece, he immediately orchestrated when she died. And we've actually recorded that one with the Chicago Symphonietto on Sadie Records. Very cool. What's interesting about the Chicago Renaissance in the 50s is that the primary figures were all women, African-American women, Florence Price, Nora Holt, Margaret Bonds, and of course some others. And, you know, the way that they supported each other, encouraged each other, lifted up each other, just found opportunities for each other, collectively achieved more than any of them could have achieved if they'd been trying to do it individually. And it's such a beautiful story to see. Of course, the less than beautiful part is the fact that they needed to try to help each other because of the discrimination that existed. There's that famous letter that Florence Price wrote to Kusevitsky lamenting the fact that she wasn't being given as many orchestral opportunities as she ought. Nonetheless, she created some great works of art. I'm still waiting to find out. It's believed that the Violin Concerto was never performed with orchestra during her lifetime. So I have so many burning questions about the history of the compositional process First of all, was the piano part a reduction of the full score, or was it the initial accompaniment and then it was orchestrated from the piano part? Uh, it's just a semantics, really, but it's still interesting for people to know which was first. Also, who was the dedicatee? Minnie Cedargreen Jernberg. Did Florence Price work with her on the violin part? Did anybody play the violin and piano version in front of an audience while Florence Price was still alive? Presumably, she might have played her own piano accompaniment part, or did she at least rehearse it with someone? We're pretty darn sure that the orchestral version was never performed during her lifetime, but there's so much of the history that remains an open question, and I'm hoping that as researchers get to work that we will start to see some answers emerge, but it's very almost discombobulating to be studying a concerto of this quality in the absence of such basic data that we just assume that we'll have for the concertos that we play. So this is the problem of so many of these neglected works, but the world is ever improving in this regard. And as you mentioned earlier, this was in a trove of very recently discovered works. Yes, and while it has been published, it was in a edition that was not so carefully done and certainly not a critical edition that examined some of the things that I underwent comparing the four different versions of the violin part and and then listing what the discrepancies might have been and why a decision was made and what dynamics might have been editorial or all of those things that there's still more work to be done even with the printed version. So I've mentioned uh, with the three pieces that we've heard from so far, they were all with the Encore Chamber Orchestra, which was a part of the structure of the Chicago Youth Symphony Orchestras at the time that Daniel Hagee was music director of when we did this in 1997. Have you gone on to work with Daniel since? In 1997, when I recorded with the Encore Chamber Orchestra, Daniel Hagee was just starting his career. He was music director of the Chicago Youth Symphony, but only for a short tenure because he went on to all kinds of great things, um, many music directorships of professional orchestras, and you can Google him and see all that he's done and all that he's doing. And I've performed with him many times over the years with the Wichita Symphony, the Syracuse Symphony, the Haddenberg Symphony, 
orchestras around the country. And every time uh, we reunite, it's always so fun to talk about our memories of these sessions with the Jose White and the Coleridge Taylor and the Chevalier de Saint-Georges. And it's been a really special thing in his life as well to have been the conductor of that album and to have been one of the artists on the forefront of bringing that music back to the public. And I know it's something that he's particularly proud of. So I think it's fair to say, although there are some tricky things for the violin in it, that the virtuosity in the case of Florence Price's concerto is once again more compositional than instrumental. Oh, absolutely. And Florence Price, she's finally getting her long overdue recognition and everybody is embracing her everywhere. She's become such a celebrated figure just almost overnight. Better late than never. But I want to caution people who are looking to diversify their repertoire or the repertoire of their organizations not to fall back on doing what everybody else is doing because we could fall into the trap of having a narrow canon and still leaving people out. So please, floor all the 450. But meanwhile, Florence Price is absolutely among the best. In fact, when my Music by Black Composers project was creating its coloring book of black composers, we limited the number to 40 the team of experts that collectively chose the 40. Florence Price was absolutely a shoe-in, and I think everybody everywhere agrees she is one of the best, but not just one of the best black composers, one of the best women composers, one of the best American composers, one of the best composers that ever lived. She's fantastic, and her violin concerto definitely adds to the repertoire of violin concertos. What is the one and only American violin concerto that is widely played is the Samuel Barber. To a lesser degree, the Bernstein Serenade. There's a lot of more recent concertos, John Carigliano, um, and of course, composers by people who came to America, like the Korngold Concerto. But yeah, this Florence Price Concerto's rediscovery fills such an important spot in the violin repertoire. Definitely has flavor of gospel and blues and jazz harmonies, but not in a very overt or obvious way, but just in a very organic way in the mix. Florence Price's concerto doesn't have passages of tenths or melodies in sixths and all those technical ergonomic violinistic difficulties. But her being a pianist and not as familiar with the violin, like many other great pianist composers, she has certainly written things that are awkward for the violin. And I say that as no detriment to her because if you play the Brahms double concerto, the darn thing is super awkward. The great composers did this. They wanted what they wanted, and if it was awkward, that was your problem. But there are things, this was clearly not written by a violinist, and things that at a glance look simple on the page actually needed a lot of woodshedding to get in my fingers because they weren't like the patterns that you would expect. But I think also there's a lack of familiarity with her music as a whole. And I didn't grow up playing her string quartets, which again have now been found. I didn't grow up playing her music for violin and piano, most of which was lost and is now found again, other than a few simple pieces, which we had highlighted for our curricular series. This was my first major practicing of some of Florence Price's music, though I've enjoyed listening to one of her symphonies performed by Chicago Symphonietta, various chamber music. So now the piece is almost 15 minutes long, and it's in a whole single movement uh, structure. Can you talk a little bit about the components of that and how it's put together? Yeah, well, first of all, I think that it's very succinctness 
is going to make it that much more easy to program. As much attention as Florence Price is getting, an orchestra that is conservative enough that they might hesitate to bring in a soloist to play just that can pair it with something else. In fact, next season, among the various performances of it that I'm giving, one of them is pairing it with a Carmen Fantasy. So come for what you know you love and then discover something else that you're going to also fall in love with. It's episodic. There's a couple of main themes. There's one very calm, beautiful theme. Yeah, that comes a few times, um, actually once played by the orchestra. And then, of course, her that begins the whole piece played by the orchestra. I don't ever get to do that bit. There is no cadenza. That does reappear at various points. There are certainly segments, so it's not a continuous flow, but the segments aren't structured in such a way that you would ever call any of them a new movement because the ideas are all shared among the segments. But she was obviously very experimental. I've read so much lately about how she was ahead of her time in what she was doing with her compositions. And just the structure of this concerto definitely speaks to that. Well, there's also a lovely dotted rhythm theme that comes in about oh, a minute yes. and a half. Dun, da, dun, da, dun, da, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and that is, I thought that's where we might begin our excerpt and hear maybe a couple minutes of this piece. So anything more you want to say before we let people hear it? No, I think the music more than speaks for itself. Excellent. All right. Well, this is an excerpt from Florence Price's Violin Concerto Number no. 2 from 1952. And in this case... Rachel Barden-Pine is joined by the Royal Scottish National Orchestra, conducted by Jonathan Hayward.
So you just heard an excerpt of a fairly recently discovered piece, actually. It's by Chicago composer Florence Price, who lived from 1887 to 1953 and wrote her second violin concerto in 1952. And it was performed there by violinist Rachel Barton-Pine with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra, conducted by Jonathan Hayward. It's the last work and the first new recording on this album we've put together titled Violin Concertos by Black Composers Through the Centuries. And it's called that because it actually contains concertos from three different centuries. It's a really wide-ranging program that I'm sure you'll want to check out. And now that uh, people have heard excerpts of all four pieces, uh, Rachel, what do you feel listeners should take from the album as a whole? Well, I think, first of all, thinking of the fact that it is Black Composers, all four of these luminaries were not rare anomalies. My foundation published a composer timeline poster featuring about 300 Black composers from the 1700s to the present. And it's an amazing visual image, even if you don't ever look at it closely, just to get a snapshot of it, you see the quantity and how widespread this activity was all the way along. And so this music hearing its quality and recognizing that it was by composers who were not given their due until so recently, since their lifetime, in some cases during their lifetime, I hope going to inspire people as performers to seek out more such stuff, to inspire people as listeners to seek out, as audience members to look for performances to attend, as people in charge of the programming side of things to look for interesting things to present, um, as board members to insist that this music be represented in what the organizations that they support are doing. You know, these are all the goals that we're working towards, and I hope that this album will be one more item that will help towards that goal. But first and foremost, as with any recording that I ever make, I hope that people will just enjoy sitting back and listening to it because it's great music. And that's what it's all about in the end, is just being able to enjoy the music itself. And in this case, being violin concertos through the centuries, 18th, 19th, 20th, being able to enjoy a showcase of the different ways in which the violin was used and the different languages in which composers wrote, spanning a wide stretch of history. Among Florence Price's many distinctions is the fact that, just like Amy Beach was the first American woman composer to have her symphony performed by major American orchestras, William Grant Still was the first African-American composer to have his symphony performed by major American orchestras. Florence Price was the first African-American woman to have her symphony number one in E minor performed by major American orchestras. And in fact, it was premiered by our own Chicago Symphony. Now, of course, it's interesting that someone of, frankly, your background has ended up being the one with the greatest repository right now of music by black composers. Sitting uh, in my condo. Yeah. <laughs> How does that feel? Well, I also have the world's largest collection of music for unaccompanied violin. But, you know, that's really geeky stuff that doesn't do as much for social justice, right? So the point is, oh, I have a, like a whole bunch of pieces for viola d'amore. I'm working on a lot of fronts that people don't even know. Um, so this is far from my only passion project, but... I love this particular project because it, besides indulging myself in research that I find fun, it also serves so much of the cause of classical music, music education, giving a voice to 
segment of the population that has not been adequately represented for far too long. So it's really an honor to be involved in this work with so many others. But I did want to mention, you know, as a performer, people could look at me and think, well, why are you playing this music? You're white. Um, So it's an interesting thing in classical music, whereas with other genres, there definitely are tricky issues of cultural appreciation versus cultural appropriation and so on. And in classical composition, of course, there can be some tricky issues when it comes to the influences included in a composition by composers that might be drawing upon something not of their own personal background and all of that. But when it comes to performers, our joy and frankly, our obligation and responsibility is to play as much of the good music, to study it, to share it, play as much of it as we can. And when I look at things, I mean, quite frankly, I'm not Russian and I play the Tchaikovsky all the time. I'm not Finnish and I play the Sibelius. People who are Russian might play something by a German composer, etc. So, of course, all of those countries are predominantly white. But, you know, the same principle holds. We have people from all over the planet playing music by composers from all over the planet. And it's one big, happy, um, universal language, to use a, you know, slightly outdated term. But um, I think you know what I'm getting at. And so... Uh, certainly a composer would not have wanted their music just to be played by people just like themselves. And so, of course, it's super important. And, you know, as a board member of Sphinx, I've been also supporting this effort for so many years. It's super important to lift up and recognize performers of color, African-American instrumentalists and singers and conductors. And Sadie Records has so many albums featuring so many African-American performing artists. It's great to play music that's not from your own personal background, but that you strive to give life to it and honor it. It's cultural celebration as far as I'm concerned. Since you talk about this whole world of music out there, what's coming up for you in concert and recording, including opportunities to continue to perform some of the repertoire we've been talking about? My management actually added to my page on their website a subset of my repertoire list listing all of the works by black composers that I offer and have been offering through the years, like the Roque Cordero Concerto by the wonderful Afro-Panamanian composer that I've performed a number of times, William Grant Still's Suite, which also exists in a version for violin and orchestra, Oh, and of course, the Billy Childs Concerto that was written for me and premiered this summer with the Grant Park Orchestra. Lots of good stuff, and I hope that now that orchestras are interested in this specific body of repertoire, that I'll have the great pleasure of performing some of these pieces more frequently alongside the usual Beethovens and Mendelssohns and all of those good ones. Any particular highlights of your upcoming fall season? Well, I'm going to be doing a number of Florence Price concertos, which I think would have happened anyway, but it's perfect timing with the release of the CD so that people can get excited about the concerto and and then they can listen to it again as many times as they want after that night's concert. Great. And of course, you'll be able to hear the Florence Price concerto on the album when it is released on September 9th. And that's when it will become available on streaming sites such as Spotify and Apple Music and And YouTube. And YouTube. And because this is a more recent recording, it will also be available on all the high definition sites that give you the music in the highest possible sampling rate. So for those audiophiles out there, we're actually going to do a separate digital release of the price separate from the rest of the album, which was not recorded at the same time. So you can get either as part of the full album 
or as its own uh, standalone digital single. But the physical CD will be the new set list. That's right. We're trying to give as many different ways you can hear the Florence Price as possible because it's such an important uh, release and such a wonderful piece. We always end these podcasts with the same question, and you've already answered one aspect of it. For you, Rachel, as a lifelong Chicagoan, what makes the Chicago music scene so special? Well, I could go on and on for an hour about all the different ways that it's special, but in light of this particular conversation, I want to again reiterate the fact that Chicago has been on the cutting edge of highlighting the repertoire of Black composers. You know, we're the home of the Chicago Sinfonietta, founded so many years ago by Paul Freeman for that specific purpose. The longtime home of the Center for Black Music Research, which for many, many years was the premier such facility in the country. It's been a great blessing to grow up here where there were all of these resources and inspirations. And the Chicago scene is continuing to be on the cutting edge of everything, including, thanks to Sadie, including continuing to highlight the works of Black composers. Well, thank you. So this has been another Classical Chicago podcast from Sadie Records. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure as always. And thank you for listening.